Do you ever tinker with making or crafting stuff? What do you do with the leftover scraps? Toss them? Save them for another project? Repurpose them somehow? I was left with some odds and ends after putting together this first official theme season here on the Haunt Johnson's podcast. Say what? Leftovers of unsolved murders, ghosts, vampires, psychics, creepy haunted houses, and the devil? How can that be? I'll show you as we embark on officially wrapping up the Haunting American True Crime series with this Bits and Pieces bonus episode. again fellow restless spirits unless this happens to be your first time sailing the airwaves with me in which case welcome but you do know you have some other listening to do right this is sort of a catch-all episode which of course you're more than welcome to listen to maybe it will help you better appreciate and enjoy the previous episodes before we begin let me introduce myself I'm Courtney Morocco, your host and guide here on the Haunt Johns podcast. Whether you're a repeat sailor or this is your first jaunt sailing the airwaves with me, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you know when new episodes drop because even though we're wrapping up the Haunting American True Crime season, we have another theme season coming soon. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But have you enjoyed listening to this season's real-life cases involving ghosts, vampires, psychics, and even the devil? We really did explore some haunting American true crimes, didn't we? Did you have a favorite? There are a couple of great ways you can answer this. Besides talking to the thin air, if that's what you're doing right now. You can always share this season with friends and ask which episode they liked best. You can also rate Haunt Jaunts and or leave a review if your podcast provider allows it. Or if you're enjoying this on YouTube, you can give it a thumbs up and leave a comment. Or you can send me an email to podcast at hauntjaunts.net and let me know what your favorite episode was. But don't ask me to pick a favorite. That's almost as bad as putting a parent on the spot in front of all of their children and asking them to rank them. I learned something from each episode, though, and it wasn't long before I started noticing, um, I'm not sure what you'd call it. Apophenia, patternicity, synchronicity, a little of each, or maybe none of any of it. All I know is that a few things popped out at me as I researched and wrote the episodes for this Haunting American True Crime season. I'll start with the first thing I noticed, which was a couple of dates. 
well, years specifically, 1977 and 1990. The first episode of the Haunting American True Crime season was about the Camp Scott Girl Scout murders, which happened on June 13, 1977. One of the murders I examined in the second episode, Ghosts Who Solved Their Own Murders, was the case of Teresita Bassa. She was murdered on February 22, 1977. Not that either murder is connected by anything other than the year, but because both episodes that I'd started were had 1977 connections, I, I half wondered if 1977 was going to come up in every episode somehow. Which it did, but also didn't. It came back up in the vampire episode where I examined the case of Richard Trenton Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, whose serial killing spree started in 1977. I'm not sure 1977 was a popular year for murders, or at least any more popular than any other year, but I did find an article from History Collection which declared it was the worst year ever for serial killers. Or, as Mike Wood, the author of the article, put it, serial killers were not necessarily more numerous in 1977, but the media coverage afforded to them, the moral panic around their actions, and the public outcry and fear generated was like nothing seen before. In America, you had the Son of Sam terrorizing New York City's boroughs, Ted Bundy escaped from jail in 1977, and even though no one knew it yet at the time, it was John Wayne Gacy's second most prolific kill year. 1976 was his first. Details that would come to light after his arrest in 1978. There were other serial killers at work then too, including the Yorkshire Ripper across the pond in England and the Hillside Strangler in California, who it's now known was the work of two men, so they're often referred to as the Hillside Stranglers these days. There was also the Oakland County Child Killer out of Michigan, a case I'd never heard of before reading the History Collection article. Four known victims, all children between the ages of 10 and 12, were killed between February 1976 and March 1977. A few other cases at that time are thought to also possibly be this killer's work, but no arrests were ever made, so all the murders remain unsolved. But if 1977 suffered an epidemic of homicidal tendencies, 1990 was a popular year for ghosts solving their own murders. Sort of. Here's how I started the Ghosts Who Solved Their Own Murders episode. Unfinished business where ghosts help solve their own murders make for great book and movie plots, don't they? The first movie that comes to mind with such a storyline is one you may have heard of from 1990. The appropriately named Ghost, starring Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and Whoopi Goldberg. But on the small screen, by way of a 1990 Unsolved Mysteries episode, Teresita Bassa's 1977 murder also came to light. It highlighted the supernatural aspects of the case, which basically were that Teresita Bassa temporarily 
possessed a former co-worker, Remy Chua, to identify and lead police to Alan Showery, the man who killed Teresita and in all likelihood would have gotten away with it if she hadn't pierced the veil and intervened from the other side. Anyway, I'm sure there's no connection or significance with 1977 or 1990, other than they both popped out at me, but I thought it was strange and noted it, and now I feel better having shared it here, so thank you for humoring me as I got that off my chest. Another thing I noticed was a name, Yuwanowicz. In the Spiritualism, Gypsy Curses, and Psychic Stings episode, one of the psychic fraud cases I shared was about Paula Yuwanowicz, who operated as the psychic Mrs. Grace. In 1983, ex-police officer Michael Sangarlo sought Miss Grace's advice when he found himself in a bad place mentally and emotionally. He just needed a little guidance and maybe some hope that better times were ahead. Well, Yuana which certainly saw better times ahead for her bank account. She explained all of his woes were tied to a curse on his money, but if he gave her $900, guess what she could do? Remove the curse. As an ex-policeman, he recognized the scam, which was a common one in Pennsylvania where he lived. He reported her, then worked with a prosecutor to carry out a sting, which worked. She was arrested, but she was only placed on probation. Another person I mentioned during the, that same episode, The Spiritualism, Gypsy Curses, and Psychic Stings, was Bob Nygaard, a modern-day private investigator who specializes in investigating psychic fraud. While researching him, I noticed a familiar name among one of the psychics he'd busted over the years, Yuanowicz. This one had also pulled a curse scam, and pretty recently too, in the 20-teens, specifically 2019. Well, she started before that. It, it was more like 2012, I guess she would have started. Anyways, this time the self-proclaimed gypsy healer Sherry Tina Yuanowicz, aka Jacqueline Miller, convinced a woman that a witch had placed a curse on her family. However, all she needed to lift the curse was large sums of money because that rids curses every time. The scam lasted for seven years and netted Yuanowicz over $1.5 million. When the victim sought his help, Nygaard gathered evidence and helped prosecute the phony gypsy healer. This Yuanowicz didn't walk away free with just probation, though. In 2019, a U.S. district judge in Florida sentenced her to 40 months, or just a little over three years, in jail. Yuanowicz is a pretty cool name. That's the first thing I thought when I saw it. I mean, it's got witch built right in. But it's not cool that there have been two psychic scammers with that same last name. I couldn't help but wonder if they were related and conning people ran in their genes. As far as I know, they're not, but that was certainly another crazy similarity I felt I needed to point out. It definitely made me go, hmm. Another thing that also made me go, hmm, was something I dug up during the vampire episode. As I was looking for real-life vampire cases to share, I came across the tale of the Carter Brothers. 
who some sources also refer to as the Carson brothers, but mostly people call them the Carter brothers. I first spotted it on Yesterday's America in a post titled, The Forgotten History of Two New Orleans Vampires. It was about a police officer in 1932 who spotted an obviously distressed little girl rushing down Royal Street. When he offered assistance, she allegedly explained she'd just escaped from a home where she'd been tied up and held captive along with others. The men who held them would cut them and drink their blood, she said. She'd escaped when her ropes hadn't been retied tight enough. The police officer really didn't believe her story, but he allegedly followed her to the home, which allegedly belonged to the Carter brothers. And, allegedly, he found four other people in a room tied up to chairs and barely alive, just like the little girl had described. It was a riveting tale that both got my hopes up and perplexed me because how had I never heard of this one before? This just did not seem like the sort of tale that would be forgotten. So I immediately set to work researching it, prepared to include it in the vampire episode. The trouble was, it appeared the reason I likely never heard of it was because it just wasn't true. There were a lot of details in the story, like the intersection where the House of Horrors allegedly stood, which was Royal Street and St. Anne. Other details should have helped corroborate the story. For instance, the names of the serial killers, John and Wayne Carter. Allegedly, they confessed to being vampires and needing to drink blood, and they would definitely kill again if they were released. They supposedly admitted that. The article also stated that they were tried as serial killers, convicted, and executed. Well, this sort of raised a red flag, but I couldn't put my finger on it at first. I'll get to why that troubled me in a second, because eventually I did figure out. But anyway, I pressed on with my research, because even though this said it was a forgotten story, it was sensational. You'd think something like this would definitely have hit the papers, but I couldn't find any mention of anything like it at all anywhere. Um, so, okay, what about the executions? Could I verify men named John Carter and Wayne Carter had been executed in Louisiana? Death Penalty USA has an index of Louisiana executions, basically from the start of Louisiana, pretty much, and then they break them up into, to like, sections of years. And so I looked at the section 1911 to 1961. But the only Carters I could find that had been put to death in Louisiana was a man named Samson Carter in 1933 and a Herman Carter in 1944. Maybe Yesterday America had the date wrong. Maybe this vampire incident didn't happen in 1932. So I did a little bit more digging, but no men named Carter were executed from 1911 to 1932 either, and none appeared on the 1722 to 1875 index either. And Aaron Carter does show up in 1878 on the 1876 to 1910 index, though. These were alleged vampires we were talking about, though, so maybe they'd somehow lived on death row for decades? 
Maybe when capital punishment resumed in 1976, they were still there. But nope, no Carter has been executed on death row in Louisiana since Herman in 1943. So maybe the trouble was the name was wrong. Vocal media's horror section recounted the tale of the forgotten New Orleans vampires in a Vampires in America article. Except there were some inconsistencies in their story, including alternating between Carson and Carter for the brothers' last names. It also recounted the legend that they'd been executed. So let's say the year was right, but the name was wrong. Were there a pair of Carsons executed in Louisiana sometime after 1932? Nope. Both the Yesterday's America and Vocal Articles wrote that the Carter brothers had been buried in one of the New Orleans cemeteries, but neither one stated which cemetery it was. And what was special about the brothers' internment was that supposedly when their vault was opened after a year to make room to bury someone else, as was the custom in Louisiana, it's now, I believe, every two years, um, allegedly the Carter brothers' bones were gone. So, of course, that led to more conjecture that, oh, they must be vampires. The vocal article also included a plot twist worthy of a vampire horror movie. According to them, one of the Carter brothers' victims survived and went on to murder over 30 people, which, as they put it, established him as one of the first serial killers. Never mind that this prolific serial killer had no name or that the Phantom Carter brothers are purported to now haunt the French Quarter to this day. Neat trick, considering they never existed. But it was the serial killer thing that finally clued me in as to what was wrong with this story. Serial killers have always been around, but it wasn't until the 1970s that the term serial killer originated. But even more importantly, why would the Carter brothers have been tried as serial killers? Their victims, remember, were only found half dead, not fully dead. There was no mention of anyone finding other bodies. This was a good lesson in paying attention. The stories had just enough details to seem legit, but in the end, that's also what tripped it up. Oh, and here's another similarity between name things I noticed. Sort of. One of the cases I explored in the Cases of Creepy Haunted Houses episode was the Westfield Watcher House in Westfield, New Jersey. About the same time I was working on that episode, I wrote about five questions I had after watching the Dollhouse of the Damned episode from the Haunted Museum series, which was about the Westerfeld House dollhouse replica, I should say, that Zach had picked up at an antique store. When my husband and I had visited Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum during our jaunt to Vegas back in 2019, I could have sworn our guide said he'd been gifted the dollhouse. So I went back to check the review of the museum I'd written and noticed that, well, whoops, <laughs> I actually may have made two mistakes. I'd called it the Westerfield House, not Westerfeld. 
Westerfield, Westerfeld, very similar. And I'm also thinking Westfield probably stuck in my mind because the story of that watcher has perplexed me since the first time I heard of it. It's just so bizarre and creepy, so uh, no wonder it nabbed the Broadus family a Netflix deal. That's the family who the watcher sent the notes to. But another thing that's always kind of haunted me and definitely always creeps me out since the first time I ever saw her is the Laughing Sal doll at the Musée Mécanique in San Francisco. That's why I'm giving the guide at the Haunted Museum the benefit of the doubt that they probably told the story of the Westerfeld dollhouse replica right and how Zach got it, and I just missed it. Because there was more than one replica in that section. There was also a hideous Laughing Sal replica right there. And the one at the Musée Mechanique is in a glass case, and she's creepy enough, but she's in a, in a glass case. So even though I'm convinced that one day she'll bust out and start running around killing everyone, at least I know the, the glass buys me some time to get away. The one in Zach's museum, however, was like part of my worst nightmare come true. She wasn't in a case at all, so while I was listening, she's just like behind this rope. I think there was a rope sectioning off so you you couldn't touch the artifacts. So while I was listening, I was also distracted because I was calculating my exit path. If that creepy laughing Sal made one move, just twitched, that was it. I was prepared to plow through whoever I needed to to get the hell out of that museum. But she didn't come alive, and now I know she was next to the Westerfeld house, not the West Westfield one. But if it turns out she's the Westfield watcher, I will not be surprised. And finally, that brings me to the last tidbits in this Bits and Pieces bonus episode. While researching cases for the Devil's Advocate episode, I had three, huh, I never knew that. Revelations. The first was when I came across an article on Vox called Why Satanic Panic Never Really Ended. Satanic Panic? What the heck was that? Well, the Vox article luckily filled me in. It gave a history of how the occult blossomed in the American consciousness, even referencing Satanist Anton LaVey, who once upon lived in the Westerfeld house, the one in San Francisco that Zach has a replica dollhouse of in his museum, not the one in New Jersey with the Watcher. Mostly it was an education in how during the 80s and 90s, Pop culture, the rise of the fundamentalist Christian right, and the media, especially when it came to covering serial killer cases, created a perception that Satan lurked around every corner just waiting to nab you or your loved ones. And in many ways, that fear still endures today. But did you know there was a real-life devil who was an integral part of the Hatfield-McCoy feud? I vaguely remember learning about the famous feud, but if I ever knew who any of the integral men involved were, and that one was named Anderson Devil Ants Hatfield, 
it vaporized after whatever test I might have needed to know it for. The bad blood between the families allegedly started when a Hatfield was accused of stealing one of the McCoy's hogs. No blood was shed then. They settled that matter in a court trial. Two years later, Devilance's son, Johns, fell in love with Rosanna McCoy. Rosanna ran away to live with Johns, but Devilance refused to give the couple his blessing to marry, so they never did. I remember vaguely hearing that there was a sort of a Romeo and Juliet story surrounding the Hatfield-McCoy feud, but again, that really didn't stick either. Nor did it stick that it was a fight between Devilance's brother and three of the McCoys that was what sparked the sensational murder case that would make national headlines. Or the fight, I should say, was the first of where the blood was actually spilled and then the Hatfields ended up murdering more of the McCoys and nine Hatfields were eventually found guilty of the New Year's Day massacre of several members of the McCoy family. They received life sentences, but Devil Ants was never charged. Some said he was the mastermind of the plot to kill the McCoys, but others said he had no knowledge. Prosecutors obviously didn't have enough evidence against him, so Devil Lance was never tried. And why was he called Devil Lance? Apparently, he was so strong that he could even fight the devil. Pretty interesting. I don't know if you want to be named for the devil or because you're strong enough to fight him. I don't know if you want devil in your name at all, but he did, so I thought that was interesting. The third... Hmm, I never knew that moment came shortly after the Devil's Advocate episode dropped. One morning I was laying in bed flipping channels and I stopped on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Dennis Farina. It had just started and was a segment about astrology and serial killers. I really needed to get up, but I also really didn't want to. This was a good excuse to linger in bed for a few more minutes. And after watching this particular segment, I was glad I had given in to my laziness. It was another piece that I could include in this bonus episode because it tied in with the devil and satanic panic stuff. The Unsolved Mysteries episode was about astrologist Carolyn Reynolds. The show's producers had given her the charts of 19 people, including four serial killers but she didn't know who any of the charts belonged to. She was only given the date, time, and place of birth for each chart. Could she identify which charts belonged to the serial killers? Would she demonstrate serial killers were actually born to murder? She ended up picking out Jeffrey Dahmer, Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, David Berkowitz, and Edward Kemper's charts. She started with Richard Ramirez, who she said was the most obvious killer. If you're familiar with the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, he was not just a Satanist, but a proud one. He yelled, Hail Satan! in the courtroom after his capture. At another courtroom appearance, he flashed the five-pointed pentagram and 666 that he had on the palm of his left hand. The astrologer explained that Ramirez had the sun and the moon and the sign of Pisces in his third house. 
He also had five out of seven of the worst degrees, and one of them was the degree of the devil. I dabble a bit in astrology, but I had never heard of the degree of the devil before. What degree was that? Um, I I had to try to figure it out. As near as I can tell, um, degrees 22 and 18 are really not great to have, but 18 might be the one that some associate as the degree of the devil. However, it's really not common to call it that. As someone pointed out when trying to answer the same question for another person, they pointed out that it sounds sensational to call anything the devil, but the devil is a Christian concept, not an astrological one. So while there may be some negative implications with the 18th degree, it doesn't necessarily indicate Satan or a predisposition to doing his bidding. But I have to say, it was interesting how Carolyn Reynolds interpreted the four charts of the serial killers. The criminal psychologist, Candace Scrapic, that they included in this segment, had interviewed a dozen serial killers, and she believed they were both a product of their environment and biology. She really didn't adhere to astrology, but she did admit she found Carolyn Reynolds' astrological observations interesting. But, as Carolyn Reynolds put it, while it may seem that our destinies are written in the stars, our charts are but a road map that inclines us to travel in certain directions during our lives, but doesn't impel us to. Ultimately, love transcends all. In the courtroom of public opinion, who has won the most cases, the legal system or the supernatural? Just based on the cases we've examined during this haunting American true crime season, I'd say the legal system prevails. However, sometimes, like in the cases of the ghosts who help solve their own murders, it does so with a supernatural assist. Although, when it comes to the devil, no one has still ever found a way to put him on trial. Gerald Mayo's lawsuit against Satan and his staff was dismissed in 1971, and then 10 years later, Ed and Lorraine Warren failed to prove the devil made Arnie Cheyenne Johnson kill Alan Bono. Overall, however, I'd say the justice system is the winner. But feel free to let me know your thoughts. Like I mentioned at the start of this episode, you can always email me at podcast at hauntjaunts.net. And if you've already subscribed, perfect. Thank you. I really appreciate that. If not, please do, or else you'll miss the next serialized season here on the Haunt Jaunts podcast, Haunted Christmas. It's just going to be a short one, a mini-series, so to speak, of four episodes, Three will drop before Christmas Day, with the first one premiering on Monday, December 6th. We'll kick off the haunted Christmas season by exploring haunted places with Christmas names, three of which also have UFO activity. 
which seems appropriate, right? It may not be aliens from another world, but Santa and his reindeer people are seeing. We'll look into that and you can decide. In the second episode, which will premiere on Monday, December 13th, we'll examine the best places to find the ghosts of Christmas past. Before I started doing these theme series, so season one, because even though the haunted Christmas season will say season three, it's really only the second serialized season. Anyway, in the first season, I did an episode where I talked about why Christmas is the best time to share ghost stories. So that's what I'm going to do, share an original spooky Christmas story. It doesn't involve ghosts exactly, but in a way you could say possessed objects are involved. And this is a fiction one, so it'll be a little bit different. Um, Then we'll end the series after Christmas on December 27th by looking at some places to spend a spirited New Year's Eve. It really has been my privilege to be your host and guide for Haunting American True Crimes, the first serialized season here on the Haunt Johns podcast. Thank you for lending me your ears and sailing the airwaves with me. I hope you'll join me again for the haunted Christmas season. Until then, ciao for now. (laughs) 